0: Should I do a little drum roll? <laughs> Let's see. What bio do you want read? There was like, Everybody <laughs> Yes, indeed. I'm going to read the short version, and um, and we'll jump right in. Maurice Carlos Ruffin has been a recipient of an Iowa Review Award in fiction and a winner of the William Faulkner-William Wisdom Creative Writing Competition for Novel in Progress. His work has appeared in many, many, many journals and the LA Times last year, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, He's a native of New Orleans, a graduate of the UNO Creative Writing Program and a proud member of Podunk Writers Alliance. And he's also my friend, Maurice Carlos Ruffin. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, it's good to be
0: here. Good, good. Um, You have been blowing up lately. Has everybody been seeing Maurice around the internet? It's really just amazing. Um, And I wanted to begin with a question that I think kind of hints at your book. Uh, Can you talk a little bit, uh, you're born and raised in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about in particular your boyhood um, growing up in New Orleans and how you think that impacted your writing or shaped your writing?
1: That's a good question. So um, First of all, hello everybody. I hope you're doing well today. It's good to have you here. Um, it's good to see my my podunk family my writing group. Raise your hands if you're in podunk. And also you. As well. um, so how did my boyhood affect my writing? I guess my first answer to that question is I used to be embarrassed when I would say this in public, but it's true. The writer who had the most profound effect in my life was a writer from Marvel Comics, a man named uh, Chris Claremont. And he's a man who wrote X-Men from like the the mid-70s through the mid-90s. And the reason why is because he was a a great storyteller in terms of like this great quick plots, but more important than that, he was really um, focused on making the characters seem human. Um, The idea of X-Men, as you know, is like these mutants who are being terrorized by humanity while they're trying to save the world, basically. And I found it fascinating. It was, it was just so, um, it was so amazing to have somebody in a cape who also had, like, um, you know, girl problems. Or, um, mm-hmm. you know, somebody wearing tights who was trying to make their ends meet so they wouldn't get kicked out of their apartment, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You had so, girl problems? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other question.
0: Um, um, but
1: definitely, my boyhood was really about, like, having really great friends, having my own adventures. And then, like, mm-hmm. seeing, like, myself in these comics... And then taking those stories and putting in my own life. And now, even years later, I still think about some of the lessons I learned reading those stories.
0: Hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, you're a lawyer, you own a restaurant, you're a runner, an avid runner. Uh, anything else you do? That's anything the top line stuff. Um, can you talk about how you discipline yourself? and maintain all those multiple uh, things in your life and discipline yourself as a writer, and Mm -hmm. in particular, to get this book done? Yeah. Well, I
1: mean, for me personally, it's about, um, first, it's just having fun. You know, as as lightweight as that sounds. And then secondly, it's not um, doing anything automatically. I always think very intently about anything I'm involved in in my life. So often I have to make choices about what I want to be involved in. Mm -hmm. And for years, I mean, in my young lawyer career was always, well, I have my, my day job. It's 60 hours per week, at least, going to an office downtown and working. And the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to spend more time uh, with literature. I wanted to read more. I wanted to learn more about writing. I wanted to read books that were, you know, not something I would have come across naturally. And um, I think what's happened is that now... You know, I don't write every day. I don't even write every week sometimes, and that for me has created this space where I don't feel guilty or shame for not writing, and um, it allows me to like sit down with you know with a project and start it and feel that this is a really important project. And if I if I'm really into it, I'm going to finish it. it doesn't matter what happens. So you know, I had an earlier failed book like most writers have. You don't, you're not writing till you fail at a book pretty much. But even that book taught me lessons about being a writer. And when I came to this book, it was like, all right. And I learned these things from what I did there. You know, I was trying to color in the lines, but it was kind of, you um, know, it was kind of messy. But with this one, it was kind of like, all right, now I know what I have to do as a writer to get this thing done. And once I started, I just was not going to stop till I finished.
0: Can you pivot there for a second? What were some of the lessons that you learned in um, your first book? We won't call it necessarily a failed book, but um, <laughs> what were some of those lessons that um, you were able to apply to? Um, we cast a shadow,
1: yeah, so um, nowadays, like these uh, tech companies talk about disruption and about failing fast, mm-hmm. and I have no shame in saying you know that sometimes you 're going to fail in life, the thing is you need to fail fast, so I was writing I wrote that book, I wrote a bunch of short stories, and things were not getting published, and it was frustrating, but that frustration forced me to figure out what was going wrong what did i what can I do to make the, make the writing tighter and make it more more pleasurable because at the end of the day we don't want to really say it, but Writers are entertainers. You want to give somebody a story that they're gonna enjoy on some level. Even a horror story or a psychological thriller is an enjoyable piece of writing. So for me, um, in the first book, it was a bit slower. Uh, the plot wasn't quite as tight. You know, things would happen. There's like no reason why, why it happened. It was like out of the blue. You know, des ex machinas, that sort of thing. And I think most importantly with this new book, it was finding a leading man, so to speak, who, um, as the writer Steve Allman says, You have to tell your reader who do they care about and why do I care about them, right? So once I could create this character who was really compelling, you know, this father who loved his family and had a very serious problem related to race and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, American society and get you on his side, I thought that from that point it would work. In an earlier project, it didn't quite happen. I didn't quite know what I was trying to do with that.
0: Hmm. So one of the challenges of this, of prepping for this um, conversation is that we want to talk about the book but not spoil the book for you all so on the last
1: page what happens
0: (laughs) so the book comes out
1: January 29th from uh, Random House
0: January 29th and we can't wait for it Um, so let's talk just a little bit about the book I I want to read this quote from Ralph Ellison Um, the act of writing requires a constant plunging back into the shadow of the past where time hovers ghost-like many of the reviews i i i got a chance to read the book y'all um i'm almost done with it it's amazing i mean i'm not just saying it is really really a good book um and uh, many of your reviewers kind of refer to ralph ellison when they talk about your book which is an amazing compliment within itself Um, as a kind of framework for your book, are there certain writers or styles that um, you try to conjure? Did you think Mm -hmm. of Ralph Ellison when writing this book?
1: Well, I think that all writers start out as readers who love books. Mm -hmm. And I think most of us have a couple of books where it's like, you know, that's what I'm trying to explain. You know, that's what I feel like. That's what my Mm -hmm. life is like. And I think I first read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison when I was maybe 19 or 20 years old. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is just what it feels like to be a black guy walking around in America, you know? And I, I was really impressed by the way that, I mean, that book was 60 years old, even at that time, and it still felt present in the moment to me. And so I think a big part of this book that I wrote was to try and create something that was like an homage to what he did, but bring it into the present, and ultimately I brought it into the future, because the book is set about 50 years in the future. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly other writers I've read um, from, you know, Toni Morrison, Nikki Giovanni, Alice Walker. Um, Vladimir Nabokov was a big Mm. deal for me in terms of his ability to transgress and use poetic language. Um, I mean, just many different writers, um, Mm -hmm. including short story writers, who taught me how to work really fast. You'll have a chapter that's only like five or six pages long, and you're just like dying to know what happens next, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know, writing is is strong. There's so many good books coming out. Mm and so many good short stories being published, it's a good time to be a writer
0: in in America. It is, it is. Um, I hear in what you're saying, the word editing keeps kind of coming to mind as you're talking. Um, You know, some writers, you know, they dread Mm -hmm. the editing process. Um, You know, you have to kill your darlings as they they teach all the time. Um, How have you been able to kind of make peace with um, cutting things and editing things. I know that we'll have the we have the final version coming, but were there some things in the book? And we'll let's actually zoom into the book. Mm-hmm. Let's do that for a second because we keep referring to it. We cast a shadow. You have the book in your bag. Yeah, you know. uh, we didn't get a chance to project it on the screen, but let's let's look at it for a second and look at this amazing Ta-da. product this is that is coming out. So let's zoom into the book a little bit and let's talk a little bit about, just generally give them what the book is about. Um, I could kind of do a little description, but I'd rather you do it. Yeah, um, Yes, yeah, that's
1: just, fine. So, I mean, the book is it's about um, a black lawyer. Uh, he lives in a future Southern city uh, with his family. Um, so part of the setup is that his wife is white and they have a mixed race son named Nigel. And uh, Nigel has this birthmark on his face. And it's been getting bigger and bigger and bigger with time. And it wouldn't be an issue except for the fact that the father wants Nigel to pass his because He's very, very light-skinned. And so this dark brown birthmark is making the narrator think that he's going to be perceived as a black child. And with all the things that, that, that happens in America with, with police brutality, things that happen in school, things that happen um, in hospitals, he's trying to protect his son at all costs. And so um, it's really a novel about what do you do to protect people that you love against structures in society that are designed to hurt them. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, one man and woman versus everything is a really mm-hmm. tough battle. Mm-hmm. And I, I was taught by some of my, my mentors that when you write a story, it's always something versus something. It's, you know, nature versus woman or man versus self. and mm-hmm. This is, you know, man versus America, uh, even as he loves America and loves his family. So it creates all these sort of internal tensions within the work that, make, that made it, you know, almost write itself to mm-hmm. some extent.
0: Um, the, the character, the narrator, is a high-profile lawyer or works at a, mm-hmm. um, a very successful firm and um, is kind of the face of diversity in, in this firm. I know you to be a lawyer as well. <laughs> and I'm curious as to um, how much truth or how much did you conjure from your own experience as a black male lawyer in predominantly white firms, and how how much of that is in the book?
1: Yeah, you know, I I always think of it as like, um, you put it through a scanner darkly, you know, there's your actual life experience, and then on the other side of this lens, it's been transfixed like through a funhouse mirror. And one of the things that I experienced, so I started practicing in 2003, and I worked for most of my career in big law firms, you know, 300 plus lawyers, where maybe there's only five or ten people of color uh, in a firm. And when I would talk to other lawyers who were people of color um, or people who just felt that like they weren't part of the clique, I would hear the same stories over and over again. You know, it would be like these sort of microaggressions or people making assumptions about their abilities regardless of their education or their accomplishments. And so I think all those things filtered into the writing. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I think he's so vivid in the book because, you know, as a writer, you sort of like just get the syrup, like the best parts of the stories you've heard and processed in your life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the things I'm trying to do with this character is he represents people who feel like an outsider in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, I, um, and, you know, going back to my childhood, having those stories that I enjoyed as a child were often about outsiders. People were trying to figure out how to do the best in a strange circumstance. Mm-hmm. And certainly he's a part of that. Mm-hmm.
0: So you conjured some of your own personal experiences. Um, you're not a dad. Um, how, and, and I remember recently... Um, or fairly not too long ago, you, you lost your dad. Mm-hmm. Are there um, is there his spirit somewhere in this in this book as well? Oh yeah. Um, with kind of because fi- I think this is also a a book about father son yes. relationships. Um, and you know, I think that that is some. I know, and a lot of the reviews are talking about satire and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I think this real relationship between father and son. And what you, you know, was it um, What You Won't Do For Love, that song? Like, yeah. What You Won't Do For Love, or Your Child, is is really permanent in this book. So um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah,
1: so one of the experiences I had when I was a kid, and I've written about this, is that um, so my dad was a car salesman. He was great yeah. at it. Great yeah. dad, we had a lot of fun together. And this was back in the day we had these big company picnics. So his boss would have this thing on the north shore of, of New Orleans and in the woods, and we'd, um, you know, have you know, jambalaya and chicken and people, you know, throwing darts and that sort of thing, a dance-off, you know, doing, doing a twist. You know, like a really wholesome event. One year, I was in a canoe, just like with a buddy of mine. I'm like nine years old, this little roly-poly kid, and I fell out of the canoe. And all I recall is that I wasn't a great swimmer. I'm in the middle of this sort of murky pond, and I spent my dad just sort of flew across the top of the water and, like, grabbed me and, like, flew back. I don't know why I think that, but that's what I felt like. And he was my hero. He well, He was always my hero. And I think that for me, looking at anybody who's a parent, um I can understand what it means to care about something more than you care about yourself and to you know basically perform impossible feats to to uh protect that person. so I'm not a parent, but I was a child, mm-hmm. and I had a great father yeah. and um that helped me inform this work. I think in some part, mm-hmm. it's a tribute to, to him also
0: oh wow, wow. um when I was reading the book, I immediately thought of the show um blackish
1: mm-hmm.
0: um I felt like.
1: <laughs> it's a good show
0: I feel like your book talks to that show um, And I was curious About um, The biracial aspect uh, To the book as well Because it's kind of also a story Of contemporary passing um, In a, you know, in a yeah. different kind of way And so uh, How did you decide To shape these characters And this, this plot um, Because there's I'm trying to think of a lot of books That talk about um, biracial children and, yeah. and novels. And you, you, we have some, but not, not a lot in contemporary, yeah. um, books, which is kind of surprising because I was trying to do some it research to find more books that would maybe be in in conversation with what you're doing. And I couldn't find too many, but if y'all think of some off the top of your head, please throw those out to us in the Q and A. But yeah. how did you think about that? Um,
1: so I heard somewhere that, um, biracial Americans are the largest growing group of Americans period
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's like this huge percentage of people are just this more of them every single day and I think that when I was writing the book you know when you're making a story you really are the, the, like the goddess of the story you control every element of the story <laughs> and so in a strange way this is gonna sound weird but it's true you get to have a like, casting calls for the characters like who do you want to play this role and I think at one point in the early draft I kept thinking well you know, who is the best wife for this story in terms of the drama of it you, know, you want to have a story that's dramatic and that just has this sort of feel of like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And frankly, if you have two people in a relationship who are different races in this country, that's going to create drama because their points of view are going to be so different. Even if they're totally in love, totally committed to each other, it's going to raise the level of, of, of drama in the story. So I think when I found Penny, the wife in the story, the mother, um, I was like, yeah, you know, you're perfect for this because she she's intelligent, she's strong, she's caring, um, she's... More capable than the narrator in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and yet some of her thoughts about how race works to the narrator are just incorrect, mm-hmm. and so they could sort of face off
0: mm-hmm. within the
1: book, and it can challenge each other constantly within the book.
0: Mm-hmm. And the birthmark, um, I see that mm-hmm. as a metaphor, because um, you put you put another layer on top. There, there's so many layers uh, of conversation in this book that is like, wait, you know, it, I was reading, and I'm like,
1: Whoa. I love layers, like
0: metaphors yeah. and. <laughs> um are you uh satire i wanted to i wanted to pivot there satire um because a lot of people have saying this is a satire book did you purposely do you see it as a satire book yes and no okay let me hear the no <laughs> well, well
1: so every time you ask a satirist if what they wrote is a satire, they always say no. Like, Paul Beatty wrote The Sellout, Mm -hmm. and after he won, I think it was the National Book Award, or Pulitzer, or whatever it was, he was like, I wasn't writing a satire, this is me writing straight, basically, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, The way I thought about it, because I do think about these things when I'm working on a a project, is that Nabokov once said that um, satire is a lesson. Like, I'm gonna teach you this thing about the world, whereas parody is a game. You're trying to draw somebody in and make them think that this is happening, but really it's happening over here somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's how I thought about it. I thought about it as being a, a complex story. And even more importantly, I think that often straight satire often very purposely avoids having these sort of, um, these sort of um, heartwarming moments where, where, mm-hmm. where people are like, very, very uh, relatable. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to like have a buddy who is a character from a, from a satire novel because they're just going to do some crazy things. Mm-hmm. There's no like humanity to their, to their um, souls mm-hmm. often. But these characters to me are as real as like my family or my friends. It's, mm-hmm. it's like they're living in an ultimate reality. I'm just sort of taking notes on what happened to them in their actual lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is satire to the extent that it's, it's, you know, willing to kind of go really far out there really quickly and, you know, have you catch up to the story. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, this dad loves his kid more than anything else in the world. The same for Penny, the mother. Uh, this, you know, the son loves his parents very much. And America is just trying to eat them alive the entire time. That's mm-hmm. a very serious story. It's kind of dark sometimes.
0: Yeah. Do you, felt, do you feel like it was the best vehicle to kind of get at all the angles of race?
1: I do think so, because um, I, I, for me personally, I, I came to understand that if I wanted to write something that was going to um, be honest, it had to have multiple levels to it, you know, layers mm-hmm. like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find that sometimes like um, you can read like a memoir or a nonfiction book about white supremacy in America and how that affects people. And often it's very straightforward, it's very polemical. It's kind of like, you know, there's a bit of anger to it. You need that. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my uh, friends, uh, Rebecca Solnit, wrote a book mm-hmm. that won the Kirkus Prize. And you can like sort of feel the theory underneath the, the pages of it. And I mm-hmm. love that feeling in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think that with something like this, where it's so tricky, and literally half of the country doesn't even want to hear the word, you know, racism or white supremacy. Mm-hmm. You need to have like something that is either like humorous or complex or references pop art that can bring them into the work. And that's Mm -hmm. a big part of how I proceed as a writer. I wanna have these sort of things that you can sort of bring the the whole family to the table to and sit down and talk about it. Mm -hmm. And you know, just get get the feelings out.
0: Um, Your book made me go back to an essay that I wanted to refer to um, called The Satire of Race Mm -hmm. in James Weldon Johnson's Autobiography of of an Ex-Colored Man by I think it's Gail Ward. Mm -hmm. Have you read that? Are you familiar with that? I read bits
1: when I was maybe in college.
0: I I feel like that is a good um, essay, um, and that's just for everybody's reference as a resource, um, because I think it really does get to some of the heart of the book in in this book of what you're trying to do. Um, There were moments in the book where I was like shaking my head at the at the Mm dad, at the narrator, like, "What? You know." but I often found myself having sympathy mm-hmm. for even the problematic things that he was doing. And I, I just thought that that was just brilliant to be able to um, have the reader have multiple feelings and you don't give us a, a clear way out of it. You know, there's no way out of this. and I And I thought about where we are today and in the world in real time um, how do you think this book speaks to um, our current conditions, our current administration Um, how how do you see maybe this book being used to um, as a kind of a lead or jump off into some of the work that we need to do in this country?
1: Yeah well I I think um I think a big part of the book is that it was inspired by people who inspired me. So, like for example, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates with Between the World and Me. You know, that was a book about him as a father talking to his son about what it means to be, mm-hmm. you know, a, a young black man in America. And when I read that book, it just sort of, you know, it just changed my entire perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, K. S. A. Lemon's new book, Heavy, which I read, I mean, that mm-hmm. is one of the most amazing pieces of art I've, I've read in years. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think when I first read his earlier work, I kept thinking about this idea of how do you love somebody, but you have your own challenges and you don't know what you're doing and you are mm-hmm. trying to do right, but you just keep messing up constantly. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think in this moment, um, people can do whatever they want to do with the book. I hope that they're inspired by it. I hope that maybe they are en- enraged by it. I think that a lot of what happens is that I mean, we can all remember what it's like before 2016 where some of us are kind of like, oh, race is not a problem. We fixed all these things. Why well, do I keep bringing this stuff up into the public consciousness? And it's no big deal. And now we're all like, oh my God, you know, hair's on fire. You know, we're, just, we're seeing these things more specifically. If you look back, there are some friends in your life who were probably saying those things you know, five years ago or ten years ago. And you're kind of like, oh, just calm down. It's not a big a deal. And so I just think that maybe this book is one more lens into what's been going on throughout the entire history of our country. I always say this is the greatest country on earth. Um, but like any family, we have some challenges that we had, that have been as the first day of the family's existence, and you know these issues with with white supremacy in America is, is a big part of that. And I think that this book can kind of maybe give somebody the strength to want to look at these things more directly and challenge themselves in their own mm-hmm. views.
0: What did your parents teach you about race?
1: Watch out, <laughs> be careful. I think that my my parents in, in particular were so like my mom's still alive and. and they love people like I love people. I mean, they just love everybody. They love everybody, you know? Um, I once wrote an essay that one time with my mom and she had to get out the car for a reason. And the, the van I was in got stolen with me in it. Like I just got jacked, right? And like, long story short, I won't tell you the whole story. Basically like when she finds out who did it, she's like not, not even mad at them. She's kind of like, you know, that was wrong, but just kind of let it go. I'm like, what, what, what? So I sort of learned that lesson. I, I think when it comes to race relations <laughs> in America, what they would say is, look, you know, people are inherently good and evil. We all have these sort of dual sides. Mm-hmm. You can't judge anybody from a distance based on how they look or where they're from or how they sound or how mm-hmm. they dress. But at the same time, when you observe, you're going to see things It's going to tell you how to react. Mm-hmm. And so you know, there's some general things you want to watch out for. I mean, obviously, you know, is it, a black person in America, male or female, there's certain things that we see with like Sandra Bland or Samir mm-hmm. Rice or whatever, that you know is gonna be a part of your life, mm-hmm. but it's not your entire life. Yeah. And so they've given me a good sort of frame of reference for being on guard, but also being open and loving. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah. if somebody messes up, then you sort of assess how that affects your life and you, and you move from that point. But you don't assume the worst coming yeah. out.
0: Um, it, you're making me think of my daughter, um, Naomi. She's six. So cute and um some folks were talking about the midterms and uh race and you know someone was saying you know um they, you know they just don't want black people to be happy in this country and my 6 year old says well i'm black and i'm happy <laughs> <laughs> like and that's I, so know, honest right yeah and and it made me really to your point um it made me really think about how um Although our parents have to teach us about race back to, mm-hmm. I think, an episode on Blackish, yes. Um, where the wife, the mom is saying, um, honey, like, we can't bombard our kids with these race talks every single day. Like, right. we got to let them live. And it sounds like that is what you had growing up. Um, and I think that that, um, do you feel like that allowed you to, a certain freedom? To like yeah, walk through the world. So much
1: of the public narrative of being black, like just watching the news, for example, is like, oh my goodness, you know, poverty, violence. You know, mm-hmm. somebody reviewed a friend of mine's book and and they talked about like the pathologies of blackness. And I'm like, seriously? No, no, no. What you're missing is the is the point that you know black folks in America are, are so integral to this nation's history. I mean, without us, there's no jazz, there's probably no rock and roll, mm-hmm. definitely no hip hop a lot of this food where there's jambalaya, we, you know, we saw mm-hmm. Leah Chase yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this stuff comes out of the, out of the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the one word that sums up a lot of the black experience really is joy. And mm-hmm. it's joy in the face of, you know, total oppression, mm-hmm. of fascism, of, you know, things worse than what you see in North Korea. Mm-hmm. And so I think my parents with like all their cookouts and family gatherings and like big pots of like gumbo or black eyed peas mm-hmm. for Christmas or you know, eggnog for, you know, for New Year's, that kind of stuff. It taught me that it doesn't matter what's going on. You can find your own happiness in life. And I think that a lot of my friends and family have taught me that lesson over and over and over again, regardless of whether they had issues with substance abuse or with incarceration or just unfair mm-hmm. job practices. It's, your strength is in the joy, and your joy is in the fact that your ancestors fought for freedom for centuries, mm-hmm. and that's given the entire world a better level of freedom from Africa to Europe to wherever else mm-hmm. you're talking about.
0: You, uh, you wrote a piece in the LA Times last year, um, What Katrina Taught Me, A Hurricanes a hurricane's wounds can be treated, but never healed. Um, to this point, we we're talking now about kind of um, our mental health around race and how we, how it abides and lives in us, and how it lives in the world. Um, how do you care for yourself mentally? And we know physically because you're like on Instagram running, and, <laughs> um, and you're on St. Charles running or wherever you're running. Um, but how do you take care of yourself, and how have you been taking Have you been taking care of yourself? Through? Probably. I think okay. So. But about as well as
1: you can take care of yourself, I think. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. Um, you're because uh, you lost a lot in Katrina, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and, a whole house. Yeah. Um, and you were in Houston, right, for a while. For a minute. Yeah. For a while. How do you? How do you, like, reset, regroup um, as as a black male and as a writer? Mm-hmm. Um.
1: Well, I think a big part of it has been, I think for most of my youth, I wanted to escape New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've been taught the lesson over and over again that I didn't listen to early. It was like, no, New Orleans is a special place. And all of us in New Orleans make it a special place. But a specific part of that is, is blackness, like I said earlier. And so I think when I was a kid, I took for granted the idea that you know, this is a majority black city, it has been since its mm-hmm. founding, and that um, so much of Southern culture and American culture comes out of New Orleans. Like I said mm-hmm. earlier, jazz, blues, mm-hmm. this sort of mentality of, you know, um, uh, just, you know, just have a good time in your life. I think mm-hmm. that once I recognized the city for what makes it so special, I was finally able to engage with the writing. So my earlier writing was just kind of like this sort of generic, I'm just going to write a story that's going to be, you know, anybody could have written it. It could have been like, you know, a Murakami story something like that. Mm-hmm. But well, once I began to study more New Orleans history, look at my own family, look at my own friends, um, I would see that there are certain ways that we live life that are so special and so unique that if I could put it into a book, people would kind of go, I've never seen that before in my entire life. Well, why? Because there aren't that many New Orleans novels coming out. And there are virtually none from uh, from black authors uh, who, who make fiction, for example. So... Um, I, I think that once I sort of bore down and said, "This is my this is my hometown." Mm-hmm. You know, it's got struggles, it's got challenges. Sometimes I can't stand it, <laughs> but it is my family. It, mm-hmm. You know, it was on from that point. It was kind of like you know now I'm more powerful than ever, so to speak. It, it's um, it's been much better for me since Katrina, and I can mm-hmm. I could even say that like losing my house and losing like a lot of things I had that period, led to a sort of flourishing, and a greater love for my community that I'm trying to give back, so that you know, if some kid at the high school reads this book and kind of go. I can do that, I can do better than that. Mm-hmm. I want those kids to have that attitude towards creativity and sort of claiming your own narratives because I'm this mm-hmm. one writer out of potentially hundreds of, of, or thousands of writers. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, hopefully I'm part of this, this, this sort of resurgence. Of you,
0: you just answered a question I was <laughs> gonna ask you, which is how important is it to, for you to be a successful writer and how important is it for you to be a successful New Orleans <laughs> writer? Um, but I think you answered that if you want to add anything. Yeah, I mean, look, any artist
1: wants their art to interact with people. So, mm-hmm. you know, a million readers is better than two readers, even though, <laughs> yeah. even though I only had two readers, that was fine as well. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I just know that often we can't figure out what path to take in our lives until we have these inspirations. And I only became a writer because of like people i met over the years. My writing group, for example, my, my very good friends who I've mm-hmm. met at writing conferences and people who mm-hmm. kind of said, you know, I'm doing this thing, it's not that complicated. You know, just mm-hmm. you're writing a story, writing a book, it's not like brain surgery, rocket science. Just give it a shot and stick with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, you know, if I'm lucky, if I'm really lucky, like 20 years from now, there's some woman or a boy or a girl or whoever who wins, like the Pulitzer says, mm-hmm. well, and I read your book, and it gave me some ideas, and I turned it into my own book of poetry or of nonfiction or of memoir or of, of whatever it is. To me, that is the greatest possible accolade.
0: Mm. How does it feel to have completed a book?
1: Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a good feeling. Like, I, if I smile too much, you think I'm being a jerk, but it really feels good. <laughs> and, I mean, the reason why I say it is because, you know, writing... Okay, I say it is e- it's easy, but it is difficult. Yes. And it's so difficult because... I think to write a good book, especially your first published book, is really you're trying to decode your own life. You're taking all the elements of your family and your history and your childhood and Mm -hmm. things that, like your pet peeves and the big issues that really crowd out the happy thoughts and you're trying to distill them into something that makes sense to strangers. Um, Stephen King said it's like telepathy. You're trying to put your thoughts in somebody else's mind. Mm -hmm. And you know, this book, you know, it sort of died on the operating table a a couple times. (laughs) You know, I think most books do that. It just Mm -hmm. sort of stalls out. And I think that the struggle that I went through and having a lot of support from my friends, some of whom were in the room, like, you know, Tad and Emily and Susan back there. And and, I'm missing somebody in the corner. Uh, Maybe not. Oh, so, so it's just, I think that once you look back and you see that people cared about you and they helped you get like past that finish line, I mean, a few things better than like having a goal in your life, moving towards it like very intently, making the goal and then saying, it wasn't only me, it was, it was like me and my people, like my posse, my family.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, I mean, it just doesn't get any better than this. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't say anything more than that.
0: To talk about that a little bit, about, you know, we're at a writing conference, the importance of having a writer, a writer's community. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Um, I, I am um, a Podunk member but I, I probably have not paid my dues in a while. <laughs>
1: Don't <laughs> um, worry, you're still
0: in. I didn't pay them you. But so. we were we were melanated together. We you know like um, you've gone on to other writing workshops outside of New Orleans. You know both of us have had that mm-hmm. experience. Can you just talk about like although writing is an isolated practice, just how important it is to have a writer community.
1: Yeah. Well, I think a big part of it is that. Um, you know, any, any writer, so writers we are like a class of human that is very specific. We tend to think that's not a big deal, but if you have that writing gene in you, it's a very unique thing because most people don't think about, like, writing a poem or writing an essay. They don't think about it at all. Like If they're a construction worker or maybe a teacher or maybe they're a minister or a doctor, mm-hmm. it's not in their mind to write anything, to create anything. Mm-hmm. If it's in you, it's not going to go away. Like You just can't ignore that. I tried that when I was, like, in law school. I tried it after when I became a lawyer. And that thought just never stopped. It kept saying, try to write something. Mm-hmm. And then I met Tad, for example, like one of the very first people who said, I'm writing something too. And I'm like, you're writing something? And you're a lawyer also? You know, and then like finding the writing group and finding Melanie and you and Jarvis. And, mm-hmm. and you start to see that like, this is not a lonesome struggle. Writers are sort of built to be solitary in the moment as you're making the work. But humans are all social animals for the most part. Mm-hmm. We need each other so much. And just on a pragmatic level, just, People make it so you're not reinventing the wheel constantly. My um, MFA director at UNO, when I got accepted to the program, he said, you know, if you come here, it's going to accelerate you by 10 years. It's like a fast-forward button immediately. And I was kind of like, all right. But it was totally true. Because when I went into that program in 2010, I'm writing like one story per year, basically, or every six months, maybe. And, you know, first year, I wrote like six stories, and they were okay, you know, but they got faster and stronger as time went on and next thing you know you can stand on your own without training wheels and mixing metaphors i'll keep i'll stop there before it gets any worse but um <laughs> but yeah i mean the community is really important
0: that's i'm, I'm glad to hear you say that we have some you know, we have a uno student i think in in the room oh do we is there UNO person new. back there somewhere
1: oh hey how fairly you
0: doing? new here from dc from howard university so the transition from going to to dc and all of that um so as you you get frustrated remember Maurice's stories about um, where he started and look at and look at him now um, one more because question because you're a writer
1: you're not an accountant sorry accountants but you're not <laughs> an, you're not an accountant you're you're making up stuff and that is just that's just joy i mean the creative process mm-hmm. is a struggle but once you create something it can't be destroyed like ideas never really go away
0: mm-hmm. i'm curious you are a lawyer and um, we were talking I think the last time I saw you about the business mm-hmm. of writing and you know we both know stories of people who have gotten really bad contracts, yeah. bad deals and I'm sure that because you're a lawyer you <laughs> read the fine print that um, you probably have a, a good contract. Can you talk about just um, what you've learned like from the business perspective of, mm-hmm. of this process and and like what things you wish you new yeah. um, and just like you know you're at the finish line now mm-hmm. what do we need to know about like the deals and the published the, the machine yeah well
1: back to what I said earlier um, first of all community is really important mm-hmm. you know whether you're doing to a, po- a book of poetry or like some you know five book series that's like sci-fi or something like that try and find people who are doing what you want to do and find out what happened to them in their process I think one of the biggest things is that I had so many friends who had some success and they would tell me like their their great stories and their horror stories. And so mm-hmm. when my time came to either find an agent or find a publisher or travel to some conference, I sort of knew what to expect for the most part. I've had very few surprises now in the past mm-hmm. maybe four or five years. Mm-hmm. And so even for me personally, the idea of, of me figuring out that I needed to finish the work before I tried to find an agent. Like most writers, even like 15 years ago, i was like, I need an agent right now. I need an agent. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be rich and wealthy. You know, you know call up gold coins. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> but then I eventually figured out that no, 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 no. I need to make sure that my book is what I want it to be before I bring anybody into that process. So that when I go to the person, they can see, you know, what I've done and kind of have like a partnership to make it even a little bit better and then get it published. And I think that, um, I think that. Learning the lesson of like the, the, the work really is the first thing you have to do. Mm. Um, that was a huge thing for me. It really calmed me down because before that's like find somebody to get this thing published. Now, but it, it, I switched over to no no no. It, is it a good story? If you give it to somebody who is a friend or a stranger, they just say oh good job with this, or they kind of go well you know it was, first 40 pages is fine, but the next 50 I don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Once you get to that sort of point where it's all you know, like checkered flags and like you made it past the basic level of, of decent art. Then you can move to more of the business stuff. And at that point, you can buy books about, like, how to deal with a contract. You know, you can go online and find things about how to get an agent. You can go online and find how to write a query letter. You know, those things will all kind of fall into place. But I would say that for me in my journey, the, doing the first part right was 90% of it. So if you create a good work, people will come to you. Um, you know, I won a contest in 2014. And literally from 2006 to 2012, I wrote maybe a dozen stories, published no stories. Not a single story in like a decade, mm-hmm. right? Um, I published like maybe a bunch after that. I went to that contest and like people just started emailing me agents like, hey, I'm an agent in New York City, you need an agent? And I'm like, what is this? Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And I sort of decided, well, okay, thank you for contacting me. I'll get back to you when I have a product, but I don't have it right now. And that was a good thing for me to sort of push back to recall that you know, you are the artist, this is your work. Mm-hmm. The people that come into your life later in the process they work with you and they work for you. Mm-hmm. You don't work for them. So you make sure that if you find somebody that's going to be a partner and not a controller or not somebody sort of pushing you along like that. And I've had that a very a, a great circumstance in my journey that my agent PJ Mark and my editor uh, Victory Matsui, I mean basically this book is, it was a pretty good book. It's even better now because they got involved with it. Mm-hmm. And because I knew what I want it to be going into that process, I knew like, when to say, yes, let's make that change. Or, well, maybe not that change, or let's do less of that and more of that. And that mm-hmm. partnership made it just so much better.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we thank you, not only for this book, but for your spirit. Like, like your spirit is you. in the book. And just, I, I, I tell Maurice all the time, I never see him seem panicked or overwhelmed or tired. He's just happy you know back to you know, well, you know um, i'm doing
1: it for new orleans yeah. i love this city so it's mm-hmm. like i mean what how can i not smile constantly about this
0: you know it's interesting you said to and i'm going to open it up to to q a in one second um because I, I just thought of something i talked with dj soul sister yesterday mm-hmm. and she talked about she never went to a second line until she was like in her 20s mm-hmm. she grew up here all her yeah. life and never went to, like she was sheltered from new orleans culture and now she's an icon. <laughs> and you talk about taking New Orleans for granted mm-hmm. and kind of like you, you know, it's interesting how everybody's talks are kind of building on each mm-hmm. other. But um, kind of like you, she also feels really um, proud and happy to represent mm-hmm. New Orleans. And so as you you talked about, I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to go away. You know she had those thoughts, but she all she always came back to New Orleans, and so we thank you and her and all those who who love us through who love New Orleans in spite of all its flaws and all the headaches and potholes and all those things that get on our nerves in this city to make it better and to shine um, to shine for us and through us. Thank you. Q and questions? Yes. Very good. And I want to know the answer to this. But I have no idea. Just as you just said, you know, or you've never seen panic about
1: the work. Um, and as somebody who has traded drafts with you, and closely with you for a long time, on that close level, I've never seen you panic with the work. But as a writer, I know you get panicked with the work. Sometimes you get into a dark place with it, and you're like, "This thing isn't what I want it to be. It isn't working." Did you
0: ever feel that with this book? And and more importantly real question how how do you deal with that how
1: do you push through that yeah i mean so i mentioned earlier that this book died on the table a few times (laughs) and uh, my friends know what i always say is that i didn't know this until i was finished but i I look back at what saved me over and over again and it was always finding a way to make the project give me more make it more fun i mean literally make it more fun (laughs) so like the first draft was third person and when i shifted to first person i don't know Mm -hmm. why i chose that i went to first person the narrator's voice just sprung to life. Yeah. And I was kind of like, who is this Who is this cat? This dude is really interested. He's like sort of saying the funniest things to me, like Eddie Murphy in your ear almost. Like, come on, man, calm down. But like, finding that dude was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, okay, um, I'm gonna give you the keys to this car. You're gonna drive it from here on out. And from that moment in this book, it's like, all right, tell narrator what happens next. Well, you know, I was at this place and yada, yada, yada. So it, it, the panic will spur you to make a change listen to the panic, listen to the fear, listen to those voices that are saying something's not quite right, because they're telling you the truth. The same way your friends will tell you that something's not working, or your workshop people will tell you it's not working. When you hear that, don't get discouraged. Just go, okay, how can I do this better? Or alternatively, and this is even a little bit harder, sometimes you're panicked for no good reason. Sometimes people in your workshop are like, yeah, this is not working, you know, I would just cut out the first half of this. um, You know, (laughs) (laughs) KSA (laughs) talks... Kiese's first novel, um, he mentions this over and over again, he says that his first novel is is about a bunch of black kids in Mississippi, right? Mm -hmm. And some publisher told him, you know, you should like change the setting to upstate New York and make all the protagonists white girls. Now, had he listened to that voice, he would have died probably. Like, he would just like disintegrate into like ashes. Mm-hmm. But he held firm and made this great work of art that, um, you know, it's called long division. Mm-hmm. So I had those similar moments, like people were saying, you know, do this, change that, go this way. And I kind of went, it's not true to this man's life. This man knows what his life story is. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to tell his story. So I can't like, you know, make him, a, um, you know, an accountant or, you know, make him live in, you know, Tucson or Alabama or something I can't do that. He has to be this man in this place. Mm -hmm. And following his true story made the book work, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. So, I don't know this, did, when did you decide that the narrator was going to be ending? Or was that, was it when it became
1: first person? You know, that's a good question. (coughs) So, I'll tell you all the secret, and whoever's on that camera over there. I mean, Mm -hmm. some people in the group know, like originally his name was Clark. And for years, I had these different stories that I was writing with a guy named Clark. Basically the same dude. And at some point, I was kind of like, um, something about that wasn't quite sitting right. me. I didn't know what it was. It just made it too complicated. And I think reading Invisible Man, for example, um, sort of taught me that I could have this narrative with this unnamed narrator. And I had read a lot of, like, not very well written, like, good stories, but some issues by other people where they were, like, do the like the, like no-name characters. Like, it's all he and she or they. and. Mm-hmm. I'm like I don't understand what's happening so I can't tell anybody apart, you know, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. But as I sort of fine tune, I was like, no, I could do this without naming this person at all in the entire book. Mm-hmm. And somehow it just it just sort of fell in place. And I felt like Ellison was kinda of going, attaboy, boy, you pulled it off. You know, congratulations. <laughs> from you know, from the grave, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, question?
0: Uh, I was gonna ask I'm kind of going back to Kelly, what you go through with, with you do a lot of things. You are a lawyer, you run businesses and I was kind of wondering how, if you draw any kind of inspiration for your writing from working, does that enhance
1: your writing life? The mm-hmm. fact that you do so many other things? Because I know for some people, they kind of need to focus solely on writing. Yeah. Totally. Does that help you yeah. Well, okay, so just for me, because I'm, so in one of my classes at UNO, one of the professors was talking about different writers throughout history. And he had like Toni Morrison and William Faulkner, like on one side, for example, and some other writers, and he had, like Edgar Allan Poe and Hemingway on this side, right? We're like, what is he doing on the board? Like, what's this chart he's making? He says there's two kinds of writers. There's minimalist and there's maximalist. There's people who cut out everything, people who add everything into it. And so I figured out that, like, for me, even socially, I'm a maximalist. I love having, like, people that I, that I meet that I don't know anything about they tell me a life story. I kind of go, I'm the one guy on the plane, you sit down next to me and tell me a life story. I won't get mad about that. Just tell me your story. I'm like, this is so great. I've made friends on planes, like, like one-hour flights, you know? I had a lady, like, just, just told me an entire life story. We You know, got to the baggage claim is like, you know, I'll email you, something like that. So I think that for me and my different exploits, I think that all of us are sheltered as children. And as you open up into the world, as a writer especially, you collect information. Mm-hmm. And so you're sort of seeing all the things, all the good things and bad things, and it's allow you to tell true stories. One thing you often see with new writers, and I've done this m- myself, is that if you have like somebody in your actual life who is a struggle for you. Like they're a bad person or they, they're like attacking you for their reason. You put them in a story and they're like this evil, you know, like Cruella the Vil type character with the, with the horns or whatever. And it, it never works because people kind of go, well, that's so one-dimensional. But if you take that person's actual traits and you kind of go, well, you know, I don't I don't like him very much and his breath stinks, but he's so nice to his mother. You know, when you put that in the story, he becomes <laughs> three-dimensional all of a sudden. And I think my job showed me that. you know. The law firms in their ways were, were hard sometimes. But I found that a lot of people, whether it's a race issue or not, it's hard for almost everybody within the law firms. So seeing that shared humanity, even amongst my like my foes within firms or whatever, helped me, um, you know, with the restaurant, seeing what it's like to be behind the scenes. You know, we we had we had the restaurant and um, it's funny because you know it was it was closed. Like the first day it was gonna open, it's like 2.30 and we're closed. And then 2.30 when we open. Somebody walks in the door, like, now we're at a restaurant. Like that magic happens right in front of my eyes. So these things (laughs) teach you about what it means to be a person over and over and over again. If you're paying attention to it, and it's one of the great gifts of being a writer, you pay attention if you're lucky. Otherwise, you're a zombie, and a lot of people are zombies. So having this multiple layered life that's so complex and so um, strange has been helpful for me. And I learned that lesson from a movie I saw by Fellini, of all things, I know it sounds pretentious, but it was a movie called Nine and a Half, while he was a director. And his life is just crazy. It's insane. It's like this crazy life. And at the end, it's kind of like, but this is a good life. It makes no sense at all, but this is a good life. And I think that that helped me to finish this book as well. Just accepting it all and just kind of go, this is this is the icing. This is the syrup on the, the pancake, so to speak.
0: What, what's, what are you going to do next? And you're going to add something else, buy something else, open something else. What's... I mean, I got
1: like four books in here, but I got to write them. <laughs> That's the hard part about yeah. it. Um, but definitely, I mean, next thing is the book's coming out in January. We're going to have a book release here in town. It's going to be huge, like the president was saying. Um, it's going <laughs> to be at Ace Hotel, um, okay. 6 o'clock. And um, we'll, we'll have a tour as well. I'm going to be traveling to different uh, festivals and conventions. And just going to have fun with it. I want to just like just take it all in and be in the moment, you know, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and just, just remember every good moment that I can.
0: Are you still practicing law? I do. I
1: work for the federal government right now. I'm a social security (laughs) administrator.
0: How do you find, are you a morning writer, a night writer? Oh
1: yeah. So again, being a maximalist, what I also learned eventually (laughs) is that routines kill me. I can't do anything the same way, like even like three times, maybe two, maybe two is okay, but three times like, oh my goodness, I'm getting so bored. And so (laughs) I don't write every day. I don't write in the same place. For a while I had a little writing pad and a notebook. I would change pens for no apparent reason, in my office at one of my firms, I decided to like stop, I'm right handed supposedly, I said I'm going to use only the mouse on the left side for the next year and just see how that changes my brain up. And so um, for me it's just about like just just like keeping my brain, they say plastic, you know, keeping it fresh and yeah. changeable constantly so that I'm not getting stayed. Um, yeah. Even Twitter helped me to kind of like get out of myself and like just say these sort of wacky. Mm-hmm. satirical things to be more courageous in my, in my speech.
0: Um, to that point, you're using social media a lot more, I'm noticing. Um, is that intentional with the book coming out? Um, and how has using social media helped, um, um, helped your profile as a writer?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's funny you ask that. So almost exactly a year ago I'm jogging through my neighborhood on Ferret of Street and I had written at least three previous pieces about gentrification in New Orleans. And so I posted on Facebook, oh my goodness, um, it's the last stop on the gentrification train, we have a Starbucks on Ferret. And so I had like 100 responses and people were like, oh my God, there's a Starbucks on Ferret. And then some editor emailed me out of the blue, I'd never met this person before, and said, hey, I want you to like write a piece about what's happening in your neighborhood for this you know, national publication. And so I found that like being on social media creates more connections. There are writers who I've been reading for like a decade, who've like won you know huge awards, who, like you know, we follow each other now. We talk about things either publicly or through DMs and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And also, I found on Facebook in particular, um, people want to see the journey of a writer because it's such a rare thing. Mm-hmm. Any artist who manages to like complete a, a work of art and put it out there, people want to you know. Like, you know, you sold your book, wonderful. You know, you found a publisher, you found an agent. You know, you here's your cover, you're showing it for the first time. It's a wonderful journey for everybody involved because for mm-hmm. me, it's a shared experience. I want it. I want people to feel as good as I feel about it, mm-hmm. so that they can do things in their own lives that make them feel it's good because mm-hmm. I feel right now.
0: There are more people rooting for you than not. Oh, absolutely! In, in life, are there other questions? Do you all feel like? Um, do you feel like me? Like I need to go add like five things to to my list to like keep up with Maurice. <laughs> Remember like, In Living, In Living like,
1: Color? That TV yeah, show from the yeah, 90s? Yeah. The Jamaicans, remember that? <laughs> they had like multiple jobs. She's like, yeah. You lazy lama bean.
0: Yeah. When I
1: was your age, I was a butcher, a baker. <laughs> Such a great show.
0: Um, can you leave us with one? Um, leave us with um, an idea, a lesson, a mantra. That, um, that you return to often, mm-hmm. um, that, that inner freedom that you seem to have. Mm-hmm. Um, share, share one thing that we can all take away and kind of conjure Maurice um, <laughs> as we are trying to be writers and poets and you know doing the work that we're trying to do in our lives.
1: Okay, here's your Maurice in the bottle I'll give to you. Um, <laughs> first, I mean, a couple of quick things. Be kind to yourself. There's a voice that we all have that's always saying things like you're stupid or you're slow or you're, making, you're mm. messing up whatever it is. And that voice is a false voice. Mm. You know, everybody has struggles. But yeah. the truth of the matter is you're wonderful. Every last one of you is wonderful. <laughs> Another thing is just like it's not about money. It's not about like a profile or you know, social media hits. It's really about like finding something that's really meaningful to you in your life. Because mm. people who find meaning in their life, it's not, it's not that, they, that they don't have struggles or problems. But the problems mean a lot less to them. And one thing that I found is that like in the years when I wasn't writing, you know, like just feeling just generally like just bad was more common. And now, when bad things happen, whether it's like my, my dad passing away or losing the house, it's more like, well, you know, that was bad, but what was good about that thing? I can find it because my, my writer's radar can find those things so easily. It's Like, yeah, this is what my dad said to me back in this day, and this is what we did together. Well, my house is even better in some ways than it was before Katrina. And just the idea of like when you have something you care about so much, you're almost indestructible. Hmm. And in a strange way, like, I have to find like, like, like my, my next meaning in life because putting my, myself in this for the last whatever years has been so important to me that now I feel like I've accomplished like almost my entire life's goal. And mm-hmm. there's more to come, obviously, but this is a great feeling of accomplishment for me. I just can't, I just can't tell you that when you, you find a meeting and you pursue that meeting, um, it's going to pay you back constantly, like a force shield against the dark things in the world. So find it for yourself. Find your community as well.
0: I have nothing else to to say. Thank you. Thank you so much.